thank you for uh, allowing us to have this time, and, and we really are appreciative of the church. Um, I, I guess what I, I should be like really Nigerian and say thank you to the senior minister, to the board of elders, to the deacons that are here, to, and then you, you go and list everybody that you're thankful for. And, and uh, sometimes it sounds trite, but we really are thankful for what the church has done for us and embracing us and really uh, underscoring the word fellowship in Fellowship Bible Church. It's almost more like you, you can call it like home Bible church because we really feel like we're at home here and the church has really uh, helped us to feel that way. So we, uh, the saying we appreciate it just sounds so trite because it doesn't quite cover even how we, uh, how we feel about being part of the, the family here. So maybe we'll call it family Bible church or something, I don't know. Uh, anyway, let me take care of one of the elephants in the living room. Yeah, this is what we really wear in Nigeria. Uh, this, is, this is the equivalent of a, of a suit and tie. And I can count on one finger all the times I wore a tie in Nigeria over the course of three years. Uh, but this, this is kind of a regular outfit, and what my wife is wearing is what's uh, a regular part of our accoutrement. This is, really, this is 10 yards of material, and it's really special when the temperature is about 120 outside. <laughs> so this is kind of getting us acclimated for heading back in, in some small way. And as the, the pastor said, um, we want to at least explain a little bit from the scriptures at first why we're doing what we're doing and maybe give a, a, just a general sense of what missions is, not only for us and not only for the church, and I, and I think what is shared this morning would even help contribute toward a missions vision to help the mission, missions vision pulse for the church, but also each one of us. Because sometimes, and I know that people say, well, there are some, some that are supposed to be missionaries, but for me, well, you know, I've, I've kind of been left out of the loop on that one. It doesn't really apply. And really, missions does apply to all of us in certain ways. So our, our passage, when we get there eventually, is going to be from Matthew chapter 4, and it'll be verses 12 to 17. Ah, but don't turn there yet. I can see you're getting ready to reach, and I can see you're turning there eventually will be there. But did you ever, did you ever read a novel? You, you go, you get a, a, fic, a work of fiction, and it's about something that happens in the present day, but in the beginning of the book, they give you a prologue. Like, it, even, I read a lot of spy novels. I love espionage novels. I love spy novels. And even if something's happening, like, in today, in the prologue, it'll say, like, Israel, 1967 or something. And then you read about that, which leads up to why the situation exists today. So we'll get to Matthew eventually. The title of the sermon is Turn on the Light, but we need to, do a pro, we need to look at a prologue first because in Matthew chapter 4, there's going to be a quotation from the Old Testament. So it helps to know why that verse is being quoted. So the prologue, before we even get to the message, and this is where you can start turning there, is in Isaiah chapter 8, starting with verse 19. Isaiah, or as my, my Nigerian colleagues would say, Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 8, starting with verse 19. And as you're turning there, like just a really brief, brief background, is that this is a time of trouble in the ministry, uh, a time of trouble among the people through whom Isaiah is ministering. 
There's enemies on one side. There's enemies on another side. They weren't sure if their friends were really truly their friends or if they were going to stab them in the back later on. It was a time of, of financial problems. It was a time of where, where their life seemed like it was in upheaval. Basically, it was a time when they just didn't know what was going to happen in the foreseeable future. You know any other times in, in history like that? Maybe we happen to be living in one of those but during this time when everything looked really bleak and everything looked dark and when they didn't know what was going to happen, Isaiah delivers this prophecy, this message, starting in verse 19. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. These prophecies are 700 years before the time of Jesus. And as Isaiah is saying these things, if you, if you are taking the inductive Bible study Sunday school class. Maybe you can be jotting some of these things down. There are some repeated things. He says, he contrasts darkness, darkness, darkness with light of dawn. And he says that there are people that lived in darkness, but that's going to change. There's going to be a light. Another thing to highlight or to underscore is the words in chapter 9, verse 1, that these are going to happen in the future. And when we think of the future, we may think of something a week down the road or a month down the road or a couple of years. Remember, this is 700 years before Jesus came to, to, came to walk the earth. And these people did not know how long future was going to be. But he said, in the future, things are going to change. And the place where this happens is Galilee of the, does it say Galilee of the Israelites? Do you see that in there? No. Does it say Galilee of the Jews? Nope. Galilee of the chosen people? No. It's Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the Gentiles. That's a clue. That's a hint to what God really has in mind, is that he is not only going to focus on one group of people who were called out with a specific group of, uh, with a group of blessings, but his plan, his global plan, is to bless all the nations that his plan is global, his emphasis is global, and the Galilee of the nations is just his way of saying, I'm going to bring light to a group of nations, to all nations that are in darkness. That was 700 years before the birth of Jesus. End of the prologue. Now we move to our, our message. So let's pray. Lord, we know that you work your plan and work your will in many different ways. And sometimes we are in awe of the way that you accomplish them. Sometimes we scratch our head because we haven't seen the result of it. But Father, as we see how you have brought 
at least this prophecy that we're looking at to pass. We pray that you would excite our hearts for, uh, for what you're doing in the world and you would challenge our hearts that we would also be part of it. So we give you thanks for how you will accomplish this work in us through the ministry of your word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So now we skip forward, now you can turn here, to Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. And in, the, in this section of scripture, Jesus has just finished, very recently finished, the temptation in the wilderness. He's just be, really recently begun his ministry. And as we read these verses, we're going to find out that he's going to frame his ministry, the very beginning of his ministry, setting out with what is important and what he intends to do based on words that we've now just heard very recently. So I'm going to start reading from Matthew 4, verse 12 in the New International Version. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, by, way of, by the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Those verses sounded familiar because Jesus moved, it says in these pa this passage, from Nazareth to Capernaum to fulfill this, this prophecy. And again, just like we read, it doesn't just say that he moved to Capernaum and left it at that. Capernaum's an interesting town. Well, and when you go to Israel, are you going to Capernaum? Yeah, you can't pass that place. You'll see a house that some people say may have belonged to Peter, the synagogue that Jesus may have gone to. That by itself would have been interesting and you could have left it at that. But the scripture again brings in the fact that Jesus fulfilled the passage that says he's going to live in a place, he's going to minister, have his headquarters in a place called Galilee of the what? Galilee of the Gentile. But, he, but isn't he the, Jew, the Messiah for the Jews? He's the Jewish Messiah, but he's living in a place called Galilee of the Gentiles. So that should be a wake-up call that something is significant. And this is the first thing that we need to pick out from this passage, is that this shows us God's intention. And God's intention is to minister to the nations. Sure, he came as the, as the Messiah for the Jews. Sure, he came to offer, the, offer himself as their king. But wrapped up even in all of that, in the tremendous way that God can make all things work according to the counsel of his will, he's also planning to bless the Gentiles. In Jesus' day, that was an area of heavy Gentile influence, which is why it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. There was a city, very, uh, an area of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of that um, land, the Ten Cities, the Decapolis, very close to where Jesus was heavily influenced by Gentiles. It says there, that place is called Galilee of the Gentiles with a highway that goes by the way of the sea. That was a major highway between the, the Syrian nation in the north and Egypt in the south. Gentiles were passing through that way all the time. It was a major north-south highway and people traveling north-south were going to be Gentiles. It was a place of, sure, there were a lot of Jews there, but it was a place of Gentile, a place of national 
influence. So right off the bat, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he, he not only shows but reemphasizes God's intention that was promised 700 years before that he's going to minister to the nations, that God's global purpose is to redeem or provide redemption for all people. It said that in the future, how many of us would wait for 700 years? That in itself is a lesson for us, that God's timing isn't always our timing, but God's timing is perfect. And sometimes, I, I don't know if I would want to be the one that had to wait 700 years because I would be long dead, but we can see that God fit it within his timing to fulfill the scriptures in his way and, um, and on his timetable. So the first thing, God's intention, minister to all the nations. The second thing that we find from this passage is that uh, the people have a problem. And that problem is that they live in spiritual darkness. In verse 16, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So in, at least in this passage, God's ministry to the nations is put in terms of the darkness of the people living in that land. If you go back again and read that Isaiah 8 passage, you see the, the words distress and darkness and distress and despair, and you get a picture of what the people were living through. But he said, guess what? That will change in the future. And as we read in Matthew chapter 4, God has now interjected into that time frame as he does with us. So he says, people living in spiritual darkness, people living in the land of death, God's going to do something for them. Well, what does it, what does it look like to live in spiritual darkness? What is, it, what is he really talking about? And um, as I said, you can go back and read some of those in Isaiah chapter 8, but we think even in our own time and even among people that we know, we get a picture of spiritual darkness. Now, some of it, maybe in our own thinking, is only taken to the extremes. I can give you a couple of examples of what we see in Nigeria that would qualify as definite spiritual darkness. We, we, we uh, minister among uh, people that's, that believe heavily in the role of the spirits, not talking about only angels, but the role of the spirits, both good and evil in their lives. They are heavily influenced by witchcraft. They're used to providing charms to get influence over somebody or using power words to get influence over somebody. Consequently, that someone may be using a charm to influence you or a power word to influence you. And you, every time somebody is sick, the first thing that comes to their mind isn't, did I take my malaria medicine or what germ caused this? One of the first things that come to mind when somebody gets sick is, who put a curse on me? That's, that's darkness, isn't it? Let me give you another picture of spiritual darkness from the place where we live. Is, is anybody in here a twin? Anyone? Any twins? All right. no, no, no twin. If you don't know if you're a twin, look for somebody that looks like you. And, <laughs> if you're a twin, back in the day in Nigeria, before the days when the missionaries came, if you're a twin, that was supposed to be an evil sign. So what the, what the family would do is bury one of the twins alive. And that way, it wouldn't be such a bad sign, a bad influence on the one that was living. Now, those sound like National Geographic kind of, of darkness. And that's okay when it happens to those people over there because we're, we're in the United States and we're much more sophisticated. We're not in spiritual darkness like them. We don't believe in witchcraft. We don't, we don't bury our twins. We don't have problems with charms and, and evil spirits and things like that. Well, spiritual darkness is true in all nations. Let me... 
recount a, a couple instances of spiritual darkness. One was when we came back, first came back from Nigeria uh, this past term, and we had a home meeting where some of our friends were gathered and some people we didn't know. And one young lady was invited by the pastor there, and she was talking to us and recounted just in passing, in a very just conversational manner, her spiritual journey. So she said that, well, she was really trying to find God, so she started off by going to a Bible study with some Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, they come to the door, they say, here's some literature, if you want more information, we're here. And she availed herself of that. So she went to the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they didn't seem to have all the answers that she wanted. So then after that, she decided to try a Mormon church and a, and a Mormon Bible study and, try and ask some questions there. So she went to the Mormons, and they said some more things and kind of tried to guide her in this way, but she still wasn't completely content with, with that. So then she thought, well, let me try the Buddhists, because there's a lot of Buddhists in the world, so maybe they have some kind of information I need. And she really liked some of what they said, but it still wasn't scratching where she itched. So then she tried to Hare Krishna's. And then after being, being taught by some, some people uh, among the Hare Krishna religion, then she decided to try Islam because, again, there's so many Muslims around. Maybe they have some words of truth that will help guide her spiritually. And she found a lot of things that she liked from, from them. She thought that they were probably a little too legalistic or required too many things also. So she didn't completely embrace them. That's spiritual darkness as much as any of the other things that happen in Nigeria or in any other place where we would say, ah, it's because they're primitive or it's because they don't know any better. That's spiritual darkness. Pastor Van alluded to what was, uh, to, to the uh, testimony that I gave at the men's retreat about how I was saved. See, the lady I just spoke of, she was actually searching for something. So that's spiritual darkness, and she's trying to find light. It's like when, you're, when your eyes, or when you don't have any light in your house, and you're trying to do this to keep from, from hitting your foot on the furniture. So you're trying to find the way, but, and you know that there's a problem, and, and you're trying not to break your toe. I actually broke my toe one time because I couldn't see what was, what was uh, uh, where the bedpost was. But for me... I wasn't even searching. I was like one of those guys that would just go running through the house without even worrying where the furniture was. I had no desire to find out where I was spiritually. My problem, uh, her problem was she knew she was in darkness and couldn't really find the right words to get her out of it. My problem was I didn't even know that I was in spiritual darkness. I was in complete ignorance. And even though I was a teen, I wasn't thinking about anything related to eternity. And in the situation that uh, Pastor Van was Recalling, I had gone to a party, and, and I'm not really proud of this because you know, he wasn't promoting beer or anything, and I'm certainly not promoting underage drinking, but uh, I, I'm not proud of that, and, and so I do know what goes on at those things, so I do know what I'm talking about, and I'm not mentioning anyone in particular, but I just want to say that I do know what goes on, and that's why I say certain things that I do. Um, <clears throat> anyway, when, at that party, I was... Got, I got to the point where I couldn't just go home the way I was because my mother would have understood that something was not right. So I had to go to my friend's house and kind of wait it off being drunk. And while we're there and we're just kind of like going through channel flipping and things like that, just um, not even paying attention, there's a National Enquirer commercial. So I have to add National Enquirer to the story too. Beer, George Foreman, National Enquirer. So you heard how the beer comes into play. National Enquirer commercial comes on, and it's talking about how George Foreman, heavyweight champion, is giving up boxing and taking up the pulpit. That was just after he had converted and started becoming a preacher, and he's a, he was a pastor of a church. And my friend, who 
had grown up in the church, lived, his, his mother was a, a dedicated churchgoer. His life would not have been recognizable by any of us as anything remotely evangelical or, or even following the Lord. My friend said, oh, it looks like a lot of people are getting born again. And even though I wasn't searching, even though I had no idea I was in darkness, I had to ask, well, what does it mean to be born again? I never heard that term before. And he explained the gospel as well as he knew it, which was straight down the line. And it was at that point that I believed and I was saved. July 26, 1980, Glendora, New Jersey, about 2.30 a.m. I'm not, I'm not saying you can stay up till 2.30 a.m. either. <laughs> Just because God used it for me doesn't mean it'll work for everyone. So. And again, I'm not talking to anyone in particular, even though I'm looking over in, in this direction. But I didn't even realize in my own ignorance that I was in darkness until the light got turned on. And any of you that are in a room that's totally dark, when the light's turned on, all of a sudden, hey, now I see where I am, and that's what happened to me. And that's what brought me to the place where I can be saved through what Jesus did for me. So the people, everyone's problem, whether it's in Nigeria or here, everyone's problem is that we live in spiritual darkness. And there's a, a lot of reasons why we're in spiritual darkness. I recounted the one which was ignorance. There's a, a way of illustrating this, this ignorance. Um, it's not my own story and it's not Kim's story, but let me tell you all a story about a man named Jed. And he was a poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. But then one day he was shooting at some food. And up through the ground came a bubbling crude. In case you don't know what that oil that is, it's black gold or Texas tea. <laughs> then, the next thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. Okay, okay, well, okay. Fake story, you know, it's from the Beverly Hillbillies. But the point is that someone can be living on top of a, of a billion dollar oil field and not know that they're really rich. And that's the same thing that happens with people in spiritual darkness, is they may think that they have their act together in the exact opposite of Jed Clampett, and they may think they have their act together and they're really ignorant of the fact that they're in spiritual darkness. Or like that lady, she tries for the wrong things in the wrong way. Or some people, as Jesus would say later, some people just have an infatuation with darkness. They love darkness and they don't want to get rid of it. They don't want the light turned on. Jesus says, because their deeds are evil. And to turn on the light is to expose what people are doing. So God's intention was that he would minister to the nation. The people's problem is that they're in spiritual darkness. But then God's intervention is to provide spiritual light. And that's what Jesus did from his home, from his ministry base in Galilee of the nations. Not just to provide light to the Israelites, or to, not just to provide light to the Jews, but to provide light to all people. And he did that through his preaching, and through his teaching, and through his ministry of compassion and healing. You read through the book of Matthew, and uh, I'd, I'd really encourage you to go through and, and look for common themes in, in a book. And as you read through the book of Matthew, you find... And he was preaching and teaching and healing. He was preaching and teaching and healing. And he was doing all these things to both expose the light or expose the darkness of the people that he was ministering to, but then not just to expose it and say, naughty, naughty people, look, you're all in darkness. See what you're not doing right? See how you're missing the boat? He didn't just do it to expose them, but he did it to expose and then to show them the way to go. 
And the way, again, as we see in Scripture, the way Jesus did that is he would taught, he, he would teach, and he would preach, and at the end people would say, you know, we never heard it explained like that before. Wow, he taught like no other man. And later on the disciples would say, didn't our hearts burn within us when we heard the kind of, the kind of things that he said? And over and over again, a testimony of how Jesus enlightened them. He turned their ignorance uh, of, of their true uh, of, their, uh, of their true position in terms uh, of awareness. He took their ineffective way of trying to find a, a path to God and made truth out of it. He took their inability to overcome their darkness and by the, the, his sacrifice of himself on the cross through the teaching that he gave that showed how to, to be saved through that, he gave them the ability to overcome that darkness. And he turned them from an infatuation with loving the things of evil and loving the things of darkness instead to loving the things of God. And the region of Galilee of the Gentiles was never the same again. See, it wasn't to the, to the, the city of Jerusalem, or it wasn't in the city of Jerusalem where he established his headquarters. It was in the place where people knew that there was darkness, wished they can get out of it. And when they did, then they responded in a certain way. So that was God's intervention to provide spiritual light. His intention, minister to the nations, people's problems, spiritual darkness. God's intervention is to provide spiritual light. And then lastly comes our mission, which is to bring light to those in darkness. Now that's not, ex that's not expressed here in the text, because this text is talking about what Jesus did. But it's far from a coincidence that in one place in Scripture, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And in another place in Scripture, he says, what? You are the light of the world. Well, which one is it? Is Jesus the light of the world, or am I the light of the world? Is he contradicting himself? No. What he said is, what's true of me, I'm handing off to you. And if I'm the light of the world, and I'm doing this, as now my people you're also going to be given this privilege and this responsibility. That's why he says, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hid. No one lights a candle and hides it under a bushel because if you're a light, why hide a light? It doesn't do anyone any good. If you're supposed to be light, don't hide it, but let it light, every, but let it light the place where, in which it was designed. So in a sense, all of us live in Galilee of the nations. All of us live among people who are in darkness. Some of us might still be in darkness today. Maybe if you're searching and you're groping and you're trying to find spiritual truth and you're not able to find it, or if you think that you have no, no flies on you and you have no problems with God, then that's another sign of spiritual darkness. Maybe you're groping and you need to have light. You need to be enlightened. And certainly one, one of us or one of the pastoral staff or one of the elders can help to provide that light. But on the other hand, if you've been enlightened, if you've been in darkness and you've had that experience where you know the switch was turned on and now you know the way, then we have the responsibility of carrying out Jesus' mission to bring light to the darkness. We have the responsibility of doing what Jesus began and now empowers us to do through the, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, through the word that he's given us, that we can show other people the, the, the darkness that they've been living under, give them hope that the light of dawn shine on them and lead them out of that problem, lead them out of that path. 
So we're either, really, all of us are either in one of two, two camps. We're either in darkness and need the light, or we've been given the light and now been given the responsibility to help others find that light. God's going to use us to fulfill his promise to the nations. For some of us, it means going to one of those places that has a flag different than the red, white, and blue with stars and stripes and everything else. But to some of us, where we're going to shine our light, our, our Galilee of the nations, needs to at least start with the people closest to us. And just because we're not a missionary going to a foreign country where, and how many of the hymns talk about heathen darkness and things like that, just because we're not going to a place mentioned in the hymns or that you would see in a National Geographic magazine doesn't mean that we're exempt from being part of God's ministry to shine light in Galilee of the nations. Because nations includes our nation as well as all the other nations. So it doesn't exclude us from ministry elsewhere, and it doesn't exclude us from looking for ministry within our own, within our own sphere. Who can we teach the right way? Who can we preach and, and tell them the way of salvation? Who can we have a Bible study with to guide them in the right path? Who can we, have, who can we show acts of compassion on that will show them the light, not only of God's truth, but also of God's love? and be a beacon to draw them according to God's love and the love that he's shed abroad in our heart so that we will reflect the same thing. That's being God's light in a land that is thirsty, that, that, is, uh, uh, that is dark and thirsting for something different. Let me conclude this by giving a, a lesson of how this was impressed on us when we were uh, arriving in Nigeria. We've been in Nigeria two terms. At the beginning of our second term, we flew in at night. And, you know, as you're flying over an airplane, you can see when you're going over a city or when you're going over a populated place, you can tell where people are at night because you see what? You see lots of lights. And you can tell where there's farmland and you can see there's lots of light. The last leg of our long journey to Nigeria is a six-hour flight from Europe, about four of which or five of which is over the Sahara Desert. Dark, dark, dark. Every now and then, though, you can see like a, a campfire light, probably some nomads or, or some of the Tamajic that are living out there. You can see a small light. But then as we're approaching Kano, Kano's a huge city. You're going to see that when we, when we talk about the, the location where we minister. Five million people, huge city. You'd expect it to be lit up like New York. But the problem is, the, let's just say euphemistically, the power grid isn't able to handle what they need to do out there. It's not real stable. And as you fly over it, we saw that out of this large city, there was a couple pockets of light, but those couple pockets of light only enhanced the dark areas of the city. And uh, yeah. in fact, one of the places that we knew it was dark was where our house was, because it's very near the airport. So we knew that flying in, we weren't going to come to any place that was lit. But the, the lesson that it seemed to impress upon us is, wow, we are flying into a place of darkness. There could be light, and there was light in different parts of the city, but most of the city, as we saw it from the, the holding pattern in our plane, was in darkness. And that God was calling us to that location to be light in the darkness for us specifically in Kano at that, at that time. And that still, that still resonates with me, is that... The, Kano is a place of extreme spiritual darkness in so many different ways. 
And God has called us to be a light in that environment. So I can say that as the overarching theme for what our ministry is in Nigeria. But see, that's the overarching theme of all of us in ministry, is we're trying to be God's light to people that desperately need to find the way. So God's using us to turn on the light in Kano, in Nigeria. And he wants to use us in the larger sense to turn on the light for the people that are around us so that no one needs to dwell in darkness. No one needs to live in the land of the shadow of death.